this is the Kol Hadash podcast. Kol Hadash is a secular humanistic Jewish congregation in the northern suburbs of Chicago. It is September 2018. As the shofar sounds, we are encouraged to celebrate the Jewish New Year of 5779. This year, Rabbi Adam Shalom explores the choice of and instead of or. In this episode, we present Rabbi Shalom's Rosh Hashanah evening sermon, Me, We. In the beginning, there were two beginnings. In Genesis chapter 1, the universe begins tohu vavohu, chaos and void, and it moves towards order and definition. Light separated from dark, earth from water, day from night. On the sixth day, Elohim, which can be God or the gods, creates humanity all at once. Male and female, he created them. In this origin myth, we were always a we. In Genesis chapter 2, Yahweh of the gods forms man from the dust of the earth and blows the breath of life into his nostrils. This man is assigned the job of gardener of Eden. But Yahweh of the gods realizes Lotov Adam Hayot Levado, it is not good for humanity to be alone. None of the animals that Yahweh creates and Adam names is a fitting partner for him, and so Eve is engineered from his side. In this myth, there was an I before a we, at least for he. Only after these two beginning stories do we read about the tree of knowledge and the snake or Eve eating the forbidden fruit and giving it to Adam, or Adam being caught by Yahweh and throwing Eve under the bus. (laughs) Neither beginning story is factually true. They contradict each other, let alone fossil records, carbon dating, and common sense. The fact that the Torah's editors included both stories raises a different question. Many times we want an answer. What came first? Did it happen or not? Is it origin story one or origin story two? There are many possible reasons to have included both stories. Each represented a vital tradition that wanted its version included. When we read them together, the first one sounds like an overview with details in the second, if you explain away the contradictions. In literature and film of our own day, we know that retelling the same story from another perspective changes everything. Sometimes the correct answer to an either-or question is yes. Is the story of America a story of freedom or a story of slavery? Yes. Was the founding of Israel wonderful for the Jewish people or a catastrophe for Palestinians? Yes. Which is the Jewish origin myth? Seven days or Adam, then Eve? Yes. This high holidays, we are answering yes. What happens when we refuse the zero-sum game of either or and instead say and? We start tonight with the universal human experience summed up by Muhammad Ali in a famous short poem. Me, we. If we must choose where to put our energy, our attention, our efforts, is it me or is it we? Many years ago, early in my rabbinic career, after a long, long day of Yom Kippur services, I went with my wife to her family break the fast event with dozens of people I didn't know. 
And after about 30 minutes, I said, enough. <laughs> enough other people, enough socializing, I need time for me. Now the next year, after a Yom Kippur memorial service, we had a member of the congregation who was in a rehab facility. And I went to visit just her. And that was the best way for me to end the holiday. She wasn't able to be at the services, but I was able to connect with her. It was still a we, but it was a much smaller we of just you and me. Who the we is makes a difference when choosing between me or we. Parents willingly sacrifice for their children. Religious devotees give of their time and their treasure. Citizens limit some rights for a guarantee for others. Even a member of the mafia is willing to sacrifice some me if their we is their family, their tribe. Those we's are clearly defined, a direct connection, some mutual benefit. Humanity as a whole may be too large a we, and our individual contribution on that scale may be too small to make it worth it. Sometimes even defined groups demand too much or provide too little benefit and we pull back to do what's best for me. And very few people would give up their benefits for a strange group outside of their circle of concern. I might be willing to pay higher taxes for my child's education, but will I do the same for other people's kids? We'll talk more about us or them tomorrow morning. Even if it is a more intimate version of we, like our family, we still grapple with the right balance of me and we. In this fascinating exploration of what makes us human, a book called Sapiens, Yuval Harari points out how home architecture reflects values. In previous centuries, most families lived together in one or maybe two rooms. Ideas like personal space, privacy, individualism were fantasy, given lived experience. In our own day, in our neighborhoods, Many live in houses with more bedrooms than people, and certainly with our own personal space. We drive alone, we eat alone, we watch movies on our smartphones alone. We call it me time. All the same, many of us do not want to live all alone, or to die all alone, or to laugh all alone, or cry alone, to celebrate alone, to mark the passage of time alone. If we withdraw too much or too often from our family and our community, we may lose those connections for when we do want them. I am not saying that you absolutely need to call your mother more often, though that may be true. My mother is here tonight and I know what she would say. <laughs> but all of you here are here tonight and not waiting for the audio podcast to come out next week. And even those listening to the podcast know there were people here they know that other people have heard those same words. Millions of people attend live theater and concerts. They pay too much for parking for live sporting events. They march in protest, they gather in celebration. These are all we times, feeling part of the group. People who attend sporting events or concerts or high holiday services do not stop being me while they are experiencing we. They are me and we. A simple example. Think of a good memory of one of your parents. Just take a moment, think of a good memory of one of your parents. Now each of those memories was different, was individual, even if the emotions may have been similar. There is no such thing as a pure me 
an individual like the mythical Adam from the dust of the ground with no context, no culture, no community. There was no historical state of nature with autonomous individuals running a social contract limiting freedom for security. When the traditional religious say you are not alone, they claim a cosmic personality. We humanists find more tangible sources to alleviate loneliness in family, friends, congregation. Even if we disconnect from our family of origin or the religious beliefs in which we were raised, we still cannot be just me all the time. Meditation starts with me, but well-being starts with we. Now to be fair, there are advantages to focusing on me. Individual rights and freedoms, the opportunity to say what I want and to think what I want, the ability to choose what I like, from food to art to a life partner, all of these came from me facing an oppressive we and saying no. We, your religious community, tell you what to believe, to eat, to wear. We, your society, set strict limits on your private behavior and whom you can love. The individual revolution we see in our architecture and our values, even in the wide range of clothing in this room, shows that our we needs to have plenty of space for every me. Not to mention the fact that the more introverted may prefer me time to we time. Now you do not have to get all the way to totalitarian religion for we to feel too far. Now I know that it's only University of Michigan football and not fascism, but 100,000 people raising their right arm and saying, hail, hail, gets me nervous. <laughs> Some of our members don't like responsive readings in our services because it makes them say something altogether, even if it's something they believe. They don't want to be made to say anything. Several years ago, an article about Kol Hadash appeared in the Chicago Tribune. I got a call from a woman in the city who said, you know, I agree with everything you stand for, I just don't like organized religion. And I said to her, two responses. First, we're not that organized. <laughs> Second, if only everyone who questioned organized religion would actually join something, then we'd have a stronger voice. You see, the fear of too much we and not enough me that prevents people from enjoying college football or joining a community of like-minded people who don't have to think alike shows the weakness of that purely either-or thinking. In modern Israeli Hebrew, a friar, a friar is one of the worst things you can be. A friar is a sucker, someone who follows the rules and gets taken advantage of, someone who gives but doesn't ask their due in return someone who is all we and no me. I remember a story told by the former Prime Minister of the UK, uh, Tony Blair, about one of his first jobs, which was as a waiter in Paris. He was told on his first day there that everyone was to put their tips into a collective jar, and at the end of the week, they would distribute those tips evenly to everybody working at the restaurant. It took him three weeks before he realized that he was the only one putting his tips into the jar. <laughs> Now, Blair would say, this is how we learned how socialism works. But we might also understand it demonstrates what it means to be a friar, to be a sucker. Giving to we without even thinking of me just doesn't work. Now, what would it mean to change from the suspicious me or we to a constructive me and we? Just as there is no pure me, there is no absolute we either. A pure collective where everyone agrees on everything nor should we want that. 
Sometimes I read atheists online who write that they want to abolish religion. People should not be allowed to be religious or to educate their children in religion because of all the problems religion makes. Now some do read Genesis 1 and 2 and think they are factual history and not myth, and they impose that creationism on others. And I do support requiring religious schools to teach core subjects like English and math and history in addition to sacred texts. This is a cause supported by a new initiative of the Society for Humanistic Judaism called Jews for a Secular Democracy. But I would not support banning the teaching of Talmud or Quran or New Testament until adulthood, as do these anti-religionists who would abolish religion. That is a totalitarian we that leaves no space for me or you or them. A society that would abolish religion has no room for independent thought. And one that allows independent thought will also allow religion. In fact, if you study largely secular societies like Denmark or Sweden, you find that most people there are not religious because of indifference. They just don't see the viability of what religion claims. They find other ways to meet the needs religion meets. Sometimes the more space allowed for me to think what I want, the better the we. So how best to execute me and we? Here's a fascinating demonstration of the me-we dilemma from National Geographic. In my family, one sign of adulthood is getting your own subscription to National Geographic. <laughs> On a university term paper, students had the option of giving themselves either two bonus points or six bonus points. But if more than 10% of the class gave themselves six bonus points, no one got any bonus points. Now the parallel the professor was drawing was to natural resources. If you voluntarily limit yourself, everyone can benefit from enough clean water. But if too many people take too much, the common resource fails. The choice here is to restrain myself to two points for the good of we, or to hope that enough other people limit themselves so I can get away with six points for me. The results? Class after class failed to get any bonus points. They were not that far off. Usually 20% or so tried for the six points, which meant that 80% chose something smaller for themselves that did not risk the group benefit. Then the professor added another complexity, three options. You could still choose two points or six points, and if 10% chose six points, the whole class lost. The new option was you could give yourself zero points. And if you chose zero points, one of those six-point choosers would also get zero. In other words, <laughs> think about it. <laughs> if I choose zero, there's zero benefit to me, but it's a greater benefit to we, because it increases the chances of staying under that 10%. Two zeros instead of, say, a two and a six. And this new version, about half of the classes earned bonus points with some zeros, some twos, and a few sixes. If you were in that class, or you were faced with a real-life example like that, what would you choose? If you choose zero, you help the class, but not yourself. Though you do get the righteous justice of sticking it to one person who tried for six. <laughs> or is choosing zero being a fire, being a sucker who surrenders their own chance for a bonus to help somebody else? Choosing a more certain two seems reasonable, and you have a better chance of getting away with six, but you could also wind up with zero. 
One could make a revealing personality test about risk tolerance, collective versus individual ethics, and more out of this scenario. When we try to extrapolate this to the real world, however, different circumstances might call up different responses. On a super hot day, do you reduce your air conditioning to lower the load on the power grid? You may sweat more and spend less money, but someone else may just crank their AC even stronger. And if enough people crank the AC, the grid might well go down. Now, I am not telling you what you should choose, zero, two, six, or to take a different class. <laughs> and the reality is that different humanistic Jews will make different choices. The point is that balancing me and we is complicated. If everyone chooses zero, no bonus points. If everyone chooses six, the same problem. Real life is a tricky balance of selfishness and selflessness, thinking about yourself and also about narrow and then wider circles of common concern. The Soviet Union was proverbially built on from each according to their ability to each according to their need, but it didn't work. Our Declaration of Independence declared that all men are created equal with rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All, except for women and slaves and Native Americans and the poor, since many states then required property ownership to vote. In fact, people are not entirely equal. There are individual differences in intellect and ability and differences in nurturing environment and birth advantage. If we were all the same, this balance might be easier, but we're not. It's a difference between theory and reality, between philosophical principles and their messy applications. I sometimes joke that my job would be easier if it weren't for all the people. <laughs> Political theorists and philosophers probably feel the same way. So we reject an absolute me or we. We know that executing me and we is complicated. What can we gain from the and? How does me enhance we and vice versa? First and foremost, I can better understand who me is if I examine among whom I was raised and choose to live. There's a reason biographers start with a famous person's family before they were born, describe their hometown, talk to the people who knew them when. Me and we is always who I am, even if the me grows and the we changes. We also know that a collection of me's working as a we can accomplish more than they can individually. When you come back on Yom Kippur, take a look at how many supplies for a safe place we will have collected. Most important, individuals can grow and gain confidence through interaction with groups and the feeling of solidarity that comes from we. Some try to claim that belonging to a religious community makes you live better and longer. The truth is it's the community that makes the difference, not the religious. Even our genes may have been selected for me and we. Over 40 years ago, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins wrote The Selfish Gene, which noted a fascinating paradox. You don't get more me than a gene, whose one goal in life is to reproduce itself. We might not like to think of ourselves this way, but from the gene's perspective, we are just large and complicated gene reproduction machines. That's what we are. Yet organisms cooperate all the time even to their own detriment. We adopt children in whom we have no genetic stake. We send our young men and women to fight so that unrelated citizens may live. Sonny Corleone from the Godfather series would have said, they're saps because they risk their lives for strangers. 
But sometimes the best strategy for individual survival is to work together, which includes both generosity and self-interest, and also the ability to forgive. If you reject forever anyone who has wronged you even once, your pool of allies grows smaller and smaller. Me only means a smaller and smaller we. Adam never forgiving Eve for the fruit. Eve never forgiving Adam for blaming her before God. Of course, if you forgive everyone all the time, you'll be a friar, a sucker, you'll be taken advantage of, and you'll also fail. We only means a diminished me. The best strategy Dawkins describes is a kind of limited forgiveness. Punish repeat cheaters who take and never give, but be open to second chances so that second chances may come your way too. Does this sound familiar this time of year? Is that not one of the most humanistic messages of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, our days of self-judgment? When we have been wronged, it's all about me. Moving forward, asking for forgiveness and forgiving others. That's thinking about me and we. It's never all one or the other. It's always both. There is an unwritten last chapter of the Jewish creation myths. Eve eats from the tree of knowledge and gives the fruit to Adam, and they each pass the buck when called. Adam blames the woman you gave me, so he blames both Eve and God for giving him Eve, and Eve blames the snake who tricked her. What we do not read is what happens right after they are expelled. Are Adam or Eve tempted to go me only, to leave the other behind? What does it take for them to forgive each other, to get back to we, the we of the first beginning when male and female are together from the very beginning? The great part about myths is that we can also tell the story ourselves as we want to tell it. We can say that they agree to forgive, they choose to be me and we. When we forgive one another and agree to begin again, we make that same choice to be individuals in connection, a community of two or 20 or 200. In the beginning can be just the beginning for me and we. Shana Tova. Thank you for listening to the Kol Hadash podcast. To learn more, support, and membership to Kol Hadash, visit kolhadash.com. To learn more about secular humanistic Judaism, visit shj.org.